It's a long recovery process. Her name is Lil. Lil. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass this morning. The kingdom's not just an idea for us. Um, it is in flesh, incarnate. It has a body. And we take it into ourselves in that form in the Eucharist. Strengthen us with, our, um, with your presence to make your love real in everything we do, to make you present, um, particularly in the world. Um, Father keeps urging us to take you to the world. Um, help us to take that seriously. Um, um, by what we say, by what we do, um, and for all the ways in which we can um, show you, particularly where you're not wanted, um, where it always asks something of us to do that. I ask a special blessing on the work that we're doing together. Um, help us to make it living, to put it into deed. Um, everything we learn to see, um, um, help it to strengthen our efforts, to change ourselves, to make ourselves better, to put our sins away, um, so that we can bring more of you to what we do. Um, ask a blessing on Lil, and be with her in recovery. Um, let the recovery go well. And I ask a blessing on Christopher and Kayla, and all that they're doing to um, strengthen their recover and strengthen their ties with each other. Um, be with us all in the efforts that we make to put our sins away. We offer these prayers in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, this is the first time we've met on the phlegm, on the hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. Boy, I get it's it's getting harder and harder for me because we did it on Monday night. <coughs> Sometimes I get lost. Um, before, before we, Doc, remind me before <coughs> I get into the Hamlet itself after the review. Um, um, to remember the readings this morning okay. and the Daniel readings, if I forget. I want to go back and make a quick review of what we've been doing, and I, I want to put together a whole perspective on the world that we've stepped into with Faulkner, because I, I believe it's really important. There's going to be a funny story here, funny to me anyway, with what's happening with Faulkner. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Don, Don and my, I can't remember, was it the wreck or here? I think it was here after a class, where he mentioned um, a character that you should have already come across if you've read the Flem Snopes first chapter. It's one of the Snopes <coughs> called Ike, who's an idiot. And I don't want to give it away, I don't want to give it away, but something happens involving Ike and a cow. And, and I'd forgotten about it until Don said something and then I smiled. Um, um, just remember that, okay? And, um, because I think I was thinking about it as I was reading the phlegm section this time because there, were, there was something about the presentation of Labov, the, the school teacher, 
um, that made me aware of you guys, again, because I'm not sure how you would have read that. There's that passage where he seems like he's this innocent guy, he's going off to college, playing football, sending shoes home to his family. Um, and absolutely falls apart with Eula. And there's that scene where it's, it, it's um, how, to, how to put it, it's like he's kissing the ground that she walks on when he kisses the bench where she sits. And I suddenly saw that through your eyes and wondered, what are they going to think of this? You know, but, um, but I want you to, I'm going to read a quote shortly. I want you to remember this. And you would know this from The Sound of the Fury. Remember we talked about this. If you look at that world in The Sound of the, the Compson family and, and the world around this respectable Christian world again, um, it's hard to find Christ. It's just hard to find Christ. And you don't see people loving. You don't see people risking to take him to the world. So it's important to see that. <clears throat> because if we're going to do something, it seems to me, I remember a priest ages ago when I taught in California, he, 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 I don't remember what the context was, he said, it's really important to know your enemy. Well, it's really important to know our culture, and it's really more important, I think, to see the way we've taken that culture into ourselves. You know what it does, so <clears throat> it's going to bring me to this thing and the, the quote that I wanted to, I wanted to go back to the Daniel passage shortly, but, but remember we're in a world that is turned away from God and one of the questions we have to <coughs> keep in mind is, is God present and at work in these stories? I believe he is, but I just think it's hard to see sometimes. So if you come across passages or sections that seem really strange or offensive, hold on, just hold on, okay? Um, because I, I, I think even, even more in this trilogy than in Sound of the Fury, Faulkner's doing something that's extraordinary. But we just have to be patient to get there if you, if you all would. If you trust me for, not sure that I should ask that of you, but if you'd trust me for a bit on this. Okay, quick review. <clears throat> um, we've been, let's see, last week, Last time we met, I did this very brief overview on the natural law tradition because it was um, one, of the th one of the things that's missing in the modern world and what's replaced it, I think, is one of the sources of so many of the disorders um, under which we live today. Remember, um, <coughs> that the, the, the mindset of people living in our world today is so much formed by the social contract theory of government. You all know what that is now. The great social contract theorists are Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. Um, and all of them believed that in one form or another, man was depraved by nature. It's really important to know that. Man lives in a state of war by nature. He's depraved, okay? He lives in a state of war. Um, left in that state of war, men will kill each other because the instinct driving them is largely self-preservation. So to get out of that state, they agree to turn over their powers to a government. And the nature of that social contract that they form is, I won't do this if you won't do this. So the nature of the modern mind, by, 
by cultivation, enculturation, <coughs> is contractual. Yeah. Hobbes believed that man was depraved and um, the only way to get out of that state of war was to give our, con to, to give our power, to give our consent over a government that had totalitarian powers. That's why the name of his book was called The Leviathan. It was this great thing that was created. Father touched on it a couple of weeks ago, I thought, in a really remarkable way. <coughs> it's sort of stupid if you think about it. If man lives in a state of war, how is it going to serve him to give all of his powers to a government that's run by men who are themselves depraved? <laughs> what you do is give them absolute power when they're evil. So, um, but don't we also say that we're a nation of laws and, and we almost idolize the laws yeah. that man makes? And we expect everybody to obey the laws. Yeah, right. Plato and Aristotle had two different views of that. I don't want to go into that. Plato's view of laws is really negative. Aristotle's is really positive. Laws are, good laws are, I want to come, that's where we're going in a minute. Good laws are meant to help us move towards a better good. The question is whether the laws are good or not, and we know that so often they're not. Um, that's Hobbes' view of man. Locke's, or I mean, sorry, Rousseau's view is the opposite. Rousseau believed that man was inherently good. Rousseau didn't, not, Rousseau didn't believe in the fall. He believed man was inherently good, and so many of the bad things he did were the result of bad governments and bad cultures. His argument is that we should give our powers over to a government and let the government mediate things. Um, it's called, he, he had a theory of the general will. If we all gave our powers to the government, it would do away with disparities between rich and poor. And it's really like a precursor of socialism. Um, he was very influential, very influential in the, um, the two revolutions, the French Revolution and the American. So the, we, that's the philosophic background of the, the mind that has formed the governments in the modern world, <clears throat> the social contract notion. One of the things that's missing from it, I said, was the natural law tradition. That tradition really only has a, a, a root in the, in the Catholic mind, and the Catholic mind no longer knows it. That's one of the, to me, one of the great losses. The natural law tradition is that um, all laws have their ultimate source in God and are ultimately <coughs> good. Um, that law is passed down through scripture, through divine law, down through natural law. It exists everywhere in nature. And if man is attentive to that natural law tradition, the laws that he forms, what we call positive laws, the laws that are in our books, the legislative laws that get enacted in Congress, those laws should properly reflect God. Anybody working in that tradition would have known that slavery is contrary to God's law. It's wrong. It's inhuman. It's on the basis of that natural law that we would say homosexual love, in, at least in marriage, being made legitimate in a marriage where it has the sanction of law. It's not just couples living off together. Now it has the sanction of law, just like slavery did. If it has the sanction of law, i.e. reason, then it's going against the ultimate source of reason, which is God. So somewhere down the line, like slavery, 
that whole culture is going to fall apart. Something's going to happen with it because it's out of tune with our nature. But nobody can make that argument if they're not versed in natural law. Now remember, what's at issue here is social contract is a construct. It's a man-made construct. The assumptions behind it are that man is inherently either all good, or so, or all evil, Locke. Okay. In Plato's Republic, the fundamental question is presented in the opening of that book by a man named Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus says justice is the advantage of the powerful over those who don't have power. Whoever, who's ever in power will make the justice, shape it, determine what's just. The whole movement of the Republic is determine what justice is. To do that, Socrates has to look at the nature of the soul. And the conclusion, I'll come to this in a minute, the conclusion he comes to is um, a man can't be just unless he orders his own soul. That should be his first preoccupation, to mind his own business, to order his own soul. And since there's a transcendent element to the soul, he has to be mindful of God. That's before Christ now. That's a rational argument. The, the, one of the outcomes of the Republic is when a political system creates a, a regime, a, a structure of government that's out of tune with the nature of the soul, it's going to cause problems. It's going to create a disordered world. So Thrasymachus says, Justice is arbitrary. It depends on those in power. How true is that today? The people in power will determine what's just. If you're a liberal ideologue, you've got this vision of a utopian world, political correctness, I mean, whatever, you know, you can't do this, you can do this. Um, um, if, 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 you, if you speak against certain principles in our modern world, you're going to be attacked and put in jail, even though presumably in our culture we're protected by free speech, by a constitutional right. If you start going against the ideologies of the modern world, you all know this because you're aware of what's going on, your life is going to be threatened, you're going to be called bigoted, you know, I mean, put in jail, what will happen? So, so there are two notions of law. One is it's an arbitrary construct, the other is that it's inherent in our nature. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, um, the laws of nature and of nature's God, that's written into our Constitution. There's two things in tension with each other. One of them is this natural law tradition. The other one is that law is a construct. It's a man-made construct. And you do it to accommodate whatever it is you're attempting to do with government. Okay? So we talked about the importance of that, that we live in there. How this is going to bear on Faulkner in a minute, I think will sort of blow you away because the, the, the relation is really close. Anyway, we talked about um, um, some of the disorders in the modern world and some of the causes of them. Um, Some of the things that we took away from the classical world that are not a part of our culture today are, 
are things like this. Plato said in the Republic um, that the most important thing for all of us is to mind our own business, to order our own souls. He went through the, the nature of the soul to help us see what it was we were struggling with because he, he argues in that work, we cannot bring justice to another person if we don't order our own souls, if we don't take care of ourselves. How can we give due to another, particularly if we all have a transcendent element, how can we really respond to another if we're not doing what we should be doing ourselves? Our self-righteousness, our sins, I mean, whatever faults we bring, whatever disorders. <coughs> That's one. He gets that in the Republic. In the Apology, the, the dialogue that deals with the death of Socrates when he's taken to court and then executed, he says the most important thing is to know yourself. That was the opening line of John Paul's Fide e Ratio. He took it from Socrates. So 2,000 years ago, this is what, we started a journey, and it was a journey in self-knowledge, that one of the most important things we can do is grow in self-knowledge. If we don't know ourselves, how in the world can we pretend to be doing something with another person? Um, and you know what happened to him. He was executed. Um, but the story is that the gods had said that Socrates was the wisest man in the world, and when Socrates heard that, he was shocked because he knew he wasn't. And he learned eventually that the reason the gods said that of him is that he knew his own ignorance. He knew that he didn't know. So when we were in questioning people to find out what they knew and what his wisdom consisted of, he would raise these questions, and he would irritate people because what, what people learned as a result of this questioning was that they really didn't know what they think they did and they, be, and they began to hate him. He's like a precursor of Christ and they killed him. And remember there's two things about that Socratic enterprise, that engaging in questioning. One of them is called Elenctus and the other is Aporia. These are the two elements of that Socratic dialogue, that Socratic questioning. Elentus means um, being brought to a, a condition of puzzlement or confusion. Socrates would ask these questions of these people who thought they had the answers and through this discussion they would see that they really didn't know what they thought they did. They were brought to a condition of puzzlement. Now that was essential because so long as they believed that they knew everything when they didn't they would never come out of the cave. They would never grow. Remember, the condition of coming out of the cave, you all remember this, right? Is beginning to wonder, to question ourselves. Bang it, Lois, just hit the, that, yeah. Or pull it out, pull it out, pull the knob out. So it's gotta go Somebody in. else. It's gotta go in. Um, Somebody was trying to come in, but I didn't know. This portion. We're locked in. We are. Here, let me. I don't want to put your shoulder to it or anything. Well, I did. Just put it to Thank you so much. It's good to see you. Um, where was I? 
so long as the person didn't question himself, he'd remain where he was. It's only by questioning that we get out of the cave. You all know that. That that elliptic condition, this, that state of puzzlement, was in a sense um, a sign of health because it was only when somebody became puzzled that he began to question things. And the aporia was the state of wonder, you know, of, um, of knowing there's something more and beginning to question and look out. So the whole Socratic enterprise was to, was to grow in self-knowledge by beginning to wonder and question. Confusion was an absolute essential part of it. Um, and, and I'm saying that with a kind of smile inside my heart because I know most of us don't like being confused. But if you look at all of Shakespeare's tragedy, if you look at all ancient Greek tragedy, all tragic heroes reach a moment of the peripatia, the turn, where they become confused and realize they don't know what they thought they know. And that's the beginning of a, the turn, the, the peripatia, towards the resolution at the end. Um, <coughs> So Socrates said, know yourself, mind your own business. And in the Phaedo, when his friends come to him while he's in jail and try to persuade him to run away, he says, I can't run away. I've lived under the laws of, even, this is the state that's going to execute him. He said, I've lived under the laws, it goes to Don's point, I've lived under the laws all my life. They've protected me. Even if there's some faults to them, they've nurtured me. How... What sense does it make for me to run away from those laws when everything I have is, reminds me of Thomas More, you know, when he went against um, Henry and the state, or, or martyrs or who willingly go to their death. One of the arguments he makes in the Phaedo is, given the nature of the soul and how important it is to do good, is that if that's the end of our life, to order ourselves to become just, to, to give due to another person, then um, one of the deductions you, we can draw from that is it's more important that we suffer a wrong from another before we inflict suffering on another. We have to suffer before we will cause suffering to another human being. Okay. Now those are from Plato. Aristotle, on his end, in the, in the ethics, makes it clear that, that virtue is a means between extremes. The more we move to extremes, the more we're likely to do wrong. You know, whatever it is, drink too much, eat too much, gamble too much, whatever it is, I mean, whatever our obsessions are, um, that, that we have to become virtuous. Because it, it's only as we become virtuous that we can do the good that's inherent in our nature. He also makes it clear in the politics that um, there are two forms of order, and he sees the masculine as the head of the household, and he will make that argument. He says the form of rule for any particular man or woman is tyrannical. I want to make this clear, so hold on for a second. He says the proper, can you close that? I, I don't know that it'll matter, but she can open it. It'll, I, I don't, if we, thanks. Um, that the form of rule of the soul over the body is despotic, despotic. To get the body to do things, the soul has to say, knock it off, stop. 
So the, the, the form of rule of the soul over the body is despotic. It has to be sharp enough. The form of rule in a relationship is constitutional. He says the man rules the woman, but he does it constitutionally because he does nothing that isn't for her good. Now think about how, how much of a prelude that is to Christ, or I mean St. Paul and God. Because um, Paul says men um, serve Christ, be obedient to Christ, women be obedient to your husbands, that there's a form of rule. That's from God. Um, that a man should do nothing that doesn't have as its end the ultimate good. It's a constitutional, he calls it a constitutional form of government, to rule another for that person's good. That is, you're serving that person. So all of these things are in the nature of virtues. They, they, all, they all take the form of of reasoned arguments. They're the result of reason looking at our nature. Yeah? That's before Christ. I hope you can see where this is going because in some ways it's so compatible with everything that Christ shows us when he comes and everything he does. If Christ did anything, he was virtuous. Um, said that against this notion of the modern world that, that, we, that contracts are arbitrary, that our nature's depraved, Either that or we're inherently good. There's no fall. And um, the, all that we do is in, out of the spirit of this contractual mindset. Okay? So remember that the social contract has behind it Lobbes, Hawke, Rousseau. The other thing to remember is that the other element to put into that is Machiavelli. Because Machiavelli said, the ends justify the means. That means in order for the prince to secure any order that he wants, human beings can be expendable. So you can justify killing a human being, putting him away, depriving him of his nature, because there's no nature to take account of the way there was in the ancient world. Is that clear? Remember, Plato in the Republic says, when a, when a form of government is out of tune with the nature of man, it's going to create problems. He knew that. A, a government had to reflect our nature, or it would not be a good government. The modern mind has reversed that. The modern mind can get rid of human beings if there's anything a human being is doing that's out of tune with whatever ideals it sets for itself. So there's so many things going on in the modern world that are contrary to our nature. That, that's really the short of this where I was going. Okay. It's one of, the, one of the things to look at. That's one. Two, what I wanted to do, remember, um, we've, been, we've been moving towards the commercial regime and this is going to come full-fledged in Faulkner. I mean, you know that if you're reading the if you're reading the Flem section, you almost can't read a page without getting some description of a cost: twenty-five cents, a dollar, fifty dollars, under twenty dollars. Faulkner is so aware of, of how economics moves people. Everything they do has got a price tag on it. We're in that commercial world in Faulkner. By the way, that one of the reasons I gave you that handout um, that the doc passed out earlier is. It goes through that goat exchange, and if you've read it, you know how confusing it is to follow it. So, um, <clears throat> one of the things I want to do quickly is to put this whole tradition together, just to remind you. So remember, when we started Dante, the commercial regime came into existence on the day Dante was born. It was in, what was it, 
1265, I can't remember now, 1268, was the date of the first <coughs> Burger, Burger Republic. Okay? It was important for Dante because it was a new form of republic that, that attempted to establish the independence of the political regime in two senses. It was independent from the emperor and the pope. Because you remember up until that time, the allegiances were to one or the other. And as a result of those allegiances, people were killing each other all the time. It reminds me of Republicans and Democrats today. <laughs> Except today, we don't argue and put people in jail. They, I mean, or back then, they killed each other. They went to war on these issues. <coughs> because they, they took them as final ends. So that regime comes into existence, 1265, or 1268, I can't remember. And the whole divine comedy is um, an expose, a, an, un, an unmasking of the nature of that regime. Because there's almost not a canto we look at that doesn't deal with some fight or disorder involving the commercial republic. That's why I treat it as prophetic. It shows us who we are. What were the two ruling motives of people's actions in the commercial republic? Those of you who did it with me, you'll What drives everybody, and what are the two things that most drive people in the commercial republic? Envy. Envy is one. Greed. That's a result of it, but pride. The two basic sins, pride never wanting to get ahead, be better than somebody else, and being really unhappy when somebody has something and you don't. What is the Hamlet about? What is the whole Snopes trilogy about? This upward spirit in America wanting to be better than somebody else. You, that is, the, and the fruit of which is treating other people as objects and justifying it because we want to succeed. We, and here, I mean, think about this. I, maybe I'm speaking too much for myself here. It seems to be one of the motives that mo or most of us, some of us maybe, struggle with is um, feeling like we don't get what we deserve. I don't know, that's a serious thing for anybody with pride. I know it is for me. Um, we don't get what we deserve. Um, what things do we do in the name of that? You can't read the opening of the Hamlet without seeing all these stupid men with their male egos trying to outdo somebody else. And the prime example is what Jody does with Phlegm. God, is there anybody more stupid in that book than Jody think he's going to outdo Phlegm? Ratliff knows better, his father knows better, and finally Jody comes to that point of the, towards the end of the story says, I, now I wish I didn't own anything because as you require more wealth, you become more vulnerable to the people who don't have it. Then you have to struggle to hold on to it. Your whole life becomes a treadmill existence to hold on to what you've got. You don't want to lose it. And if you're in a contractual thing, you're always going to be conscious that you might get screwed by somebody or you want to try to do better than somebody else. I let this, <laughs> on Monday night, I, I told everybody that um, when Suzanne and I left California, we had this house forever when we did the doctoral here and we rented it out and, and continued to rent it when, when we went east and then came here. We sold it a couple of years ago. I didn't even want to tell you what we sold it for. It's in Bay Area in San Francisco. It embarrasses me. We didn't want to pay the capital gains I don't want to lose, because I deserve more than that. I don't want to lose that money. I, I'm sure you all, you don't, you don't want to give that money. I don't want to give it to the government. Um, we didn't want to 
pay the capital gains, so we had to reinvest it in rental property here. Well, we've got these rental homes now, and one house has been on the market for months and months. Several months ago, some guy came to us with a bid and said he'd, he'd give us an 18-month lease, but, but he wanted to drop the price way below the asking. You know, I, we didn't, I didn't want to do that because it was worth more. It's still not rented. And I look back and I'm reading the Hamlet and thinking, should I, should I not? Yeah. How much do those motives drive us in daily? I mean, Faulkner's talking about this on a daily, 25 cents, a nickel. Back then, that was a fortune. But I look at this and I think, that's us. This is us. So there it was in the beginning, the, the commercial republic. Dante's revealing it to us. He's showing us in our origins what this is about. What does he leave us with? I mean, what guidance does he give us? It seems to, because I want to do this with the works that we, I'm going to just quickly move forward, it's quickly. <laughs> Somebody get a picture of my wife right now. with because he makes clear how much pride and envy drive everything about that regime. Um, I think what Dante is saying when you put the whole thing together, if we can take out a positive, it's never to lose sight of final ends. How many of you were in mass today? If you, if you were, you would have heard Father Father Sermon homily. <coughs> it was from the book of Daniel. Daniel's talking about final ends, and Father, the point of Father's homily is we should be living every day as if it's our final end. We shouldn't be waiting, you know, when is it going to happen? Be because if we know it's 10 years from now, think about all the things we can get away with until that final day. <laughs> Father's point was, <laughs> what's the good of knowing it? It's coming. The question is, are we really preparing ourselves? Do we live every day as if it's the last one? Um, what Dante's showing us is to to keep in mind final ends, because what are the two final ends in Dante's Commedia? Hell, heaven. Big mystery. Does the modern world have any sense of final ends in our culture? No, the whole, the whole direction of our culture is a consumerist culture, it's a treadmill. You, they continue to stimulate things so that we continue to buy so that once we get things, we will desire more. It's a treadmill existence. It's, it's a proliferation of means without ends. That's the nature of the modern regime. It's a proliferation of means without ends. Because otherwise, how can it sustain itself if we don't keep buying? So what Dante's doing, I mean, it's, you know, if, you, if you've done it, you remember it, it is that it's prophetic. It's, Dante's showing us these things, that he has things to show us, because if he doesn't, he will have failed in his Christian calling to, to present this to us. So one of the positive things to take from the Commedia is um, keep in mind final things always in front of us. Shakespeare gave us Othello and Merchant of Venice, remember, and Shakespeare's critique of the commercial regime. What does he show us there? In Merchant of Venice, remember Antonio, 
writes up a contract with Shylock to borrow money to help his friend. His ships don't come in. Shylock takes him to court to have his pound of flesh. What's the, for Shakespeare, this is amazing. For Shakespeare, what's the cost of the commercial regime? Death. <laughs> Shylock has his will. The merchant of Venice, that's the name of the, the merchant of Antonio, dead. If he dies, the commercial regime goes down. If the, if the, let me put that differently. If the contract is enforced, he dies. The merchant of Venice dies. The Venetian Republic dies. If they let it go, because the Christians say, he doesn't deserve this, let him off. If they let it go, the commercial regime dies. Why? Because if you don't enforce the contracts, who's going to be willing to enter into one? There, I mean, there's Shakespeare's critique, naked. That's the danger. <laughs> Those are the two extremes. He can't get off without the help of somebody who comes from outside Venice, and it's a woman. It's Portia. And it's so clear from everything she does how well-educated. She knows Aristotle. When she and Nurse are together, they're talking about the importance of staying in the mean. She's clearly read him. When she comes there, she has to avoid those two extremes to bring a conclusion that's implied in the law, but nobody in Venice could have seen. When the, you all remember that, right? Are you following me? I hope I'm, okay. When, the, when she succeeds and turns the tables on Shylock, and she does it by doing what he does, but going farther, She's doing what nobody else can. She wants the end of the law because the end of law is a good. It's not platonic, it's not a, it's not a punishment. The whole fruit of the law is to help make people good, to, to arrive at a better good. She does that. When the court business is over, what do they do? They go back to Belmont. They don't stay in Venice, why? Because it's an inhuman place to be. The opening lines, if you remember the opening lines of Merchant of Venice, Antonio says, I'm sad. Those are the opening lines, I'm sad. And his friends say, I know why you're sad, because your ships are all at sea. And he, he says, no, 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 that's not it. Remember the one line where, where one of the Stellario says, if I saw my ships at sea and hitting a rock, and I walked in, or if I walked into church and looking at the rocks of the altar, I'm reminded of religion gives way his concern is not where it should be when he walks into a church. It's on what's happening with his investments. And Antonio, um, that first scene closes when he says, when Bassanio comes in, he says, when shall we see you again? I haven't seen you forever. Because business doesn't allow it. There's no friendship in Venice. Why? Because people are too bus busy with work. <coughs> Aristotle, one of the fundamental principles of Aristotle's politics, ethics. No regime can become what it potentially can become without friendships. The basis of a healthy regime is friendship. How strong are friendships in our country with a business ethic, with everybody pushing themselves? I'm sure, I'm, I'm guessing all of you have had this where you say you haven't seen a friend in a long time and you say let's get together and it doesn't happen. It just never happens. Why? People are off working. Everybody goes back to Belmont because there's something inhuman, and even more inhuman than what I'm talking about. Remember in that ex exchange when Antonio comes to borrow the money from Shylock, um, 
and, and says, I'll do it for a pound of flesh. And Bassanio says, don't do it, Antonio. That's not good. Shylock's response is, what am I going to gain with a pound of flesh? How much money can I bring in? It's not as good as goats, muffin, beef, you know. The human body is degraded in terms of what drives the commercial regimes because it's not sellable. So what happens to the human body in the commercial regime? Take a look at abortions. Take a look at the violence and death. So is everybody following? So Shakespeare's critique of the commercial republic is pretty, that's, that's a comedy. They go away to Belmont. It's a deadly place. The human, the human being is devalued, degraded because he's not worth money. How often do we judge people in terms of their worth? This guy's not worth much because he doesn't have any money. How much do we drive ourselves because we want to be wealthy? We want to be, we want to be seen to be, sounds like Mrs. May, who wants to be better than other people. She drives herself to be successful. Yeah? So, Merchant of Venice, the commercial republic is inhuman. Othello, the tragedy, the tragic aspect of the Venetian regime, Othello kills his wife. There's nothing Iago, there's nobody in that play that Iago can't manipulate. They're all drawn towards fictions, trust, trusting people. If you look at the whole Shakespeare canon and all the regimes, because he, he wrote plays in every conceivable kind of regime, if you read his whole corpus, the most evil person in all of his regimes is Iago. And it's clear that it that Iago is inimical to love. There's something in the commercial regime that's inimical to love. Why? What is it? Because we, once we start valuing money more than other people, what happens to our loves? If you look at the commercial regime and its preoccupation with wealth, what happens to the traditional values? Love, honor, friendship, the things that hold people together. Othello kills his wife. That's not an accident. And he does it with Iago's manipulation. So how many people in the co contractual regime are susceptible to be manipulated by other people because they want things or they're trusting and you know, too willing to believe something and then find themselves in a dark hole? So there's Shakespeare treatment. Am I going too fast? Sorry. Is that following? Moby Dick. We saw it. Um, the, the opening third of the novel is that critique of the New England culture and the way it's lost its way with its Christian values. And they go out to sea to ravage, to ravage nature in order to make their money. What's he, what does Iago bring back to us? I mean, remember, if he's a Jonah figure, he's come back to tell us something. Do we hear? Are we hearing? What he comes back to tell us is, Everybody's going to suffer. Remember, the universal thump gets passed around, if you remember the opening. We can't allow our suffering to get us caught up in an Ahab quest. And what's the counter to that? This extraordinary beauty and meaning to everything in nature. You can't read the Moby Dick without watching Ishmael take a look at everything in nature and find meaning in it. So whatever suffering goes on, what he's showing us is that we live in an extraordinary world. How many of us see the world that way with our eyes today? Melville gave us that. 
And now we're at Faulkner and the Snopes trilogy. And let me just make this transition if I can. A couple of weeks ago when I started reading, we had, I had just gotten through doing this quick overview a couple of weeks ago you know, on, on the social contract theory and how I wasn't looking forward to <coughs> Faulkner at all. I was just wanting to deal with some of the disorders that we were looking at in the, in the short stories that we were dealing with. And I picked up the Hamlet to start reading to get ready for it. I hadn't read it in ages. I was laughing and laughing at what was going on in that. I mean, just to me, it's hilarious. But one of the things that jumped out at me in the beginning, I said, here's the social, you can't read the opening section without saying, here's the social contract in the flesh. There's, there is nothing these men do, don't do that isn't involving a contractual mind, trying to beat somebody on a contract. And it's laughable because they keep getting screwed. Um, how stupid these men with their male egos wanting to outdo some other guy and then wanting to get back at him when he, you know, when he, because they've got to answer that. And so it doesn't stop, it just doesn't stop. And there it was, and I hadn't even, I'd forgotten. So we're in this contractual world. This is the commercial regime. What Faulkner's gonna do now in an amazing, amazing way is, is go to the principle of it because Flem Snopes is an image of what's at the bottom of this contractual world. And he's not pleasant to look at. I'm just thinking that when you're talking about contracts, contracts that that's one of the basis of capitalism: private property, contracts, right. it is monopoly, the basis, yeah. bankruptcy, and uh, enforcement. Yep, yep, yep. And as you know from the Flynn episode, that's what the whole the whole Flynn episode is about. But hold on to the other side of that. Just remember this: um, what happens to love in this book? And when I came to the end of the Eula section, you guys may not be there, I came to the end of it, I don't want to give it away if you haven't got there, my heart dropped. My heart just dropped. Into this world comes this ex ex extraordinarily beautiful woman, very sensuous. She's like a, something out of a Homeric world. She's so voluptuous. She just, I, I want to read the passages. They're just hilarious. I don't want to do it today, but this Olympian ejaculation that took place in this small village produced this and if you've, if you've read, if you're in the Euless section, you know these men just swarm around. I, I tried to picture Sophia Loren. Well, Matt, truly, if, if, imagine being somebody like Sophia Loren. Give me, what, who's another one? Sophia Loren. I can't remember the other woman I was thinking about, but. In our culture, Marilyn Monroe, she was, I mean, hmm? Marilyn Monroe. Our to me, she. I she thought about, but yeah. I mean, there's something Italian. But yeah. Marilyn was, was. She didn't have that. I mean, she was. And how much Hollywood created it? Sophia Loren was, like. I mean, physically, she was. You know, just so much more visibly voluptuous than Marilyn. I can't remember the other woman, but you, I think you know what I'm talking about. Imagine being a woman like that growing up. And the circle of girls around her growing up. What is a, when you know that everybody else is aware of you? Um, Wagner calls her the centrix, you know, the, but the matrix. But what happens to love in this world? And when you come to the Ike episode, with I'm not going to, I don't want to. When you come to the Ike episode, just remember that we know, we knew, we know from uh, Sound of Fury that the. The one that seems to most closely approximate love is Benji. He's an idiot. 
You know, he's constantly going out wanting to say something to Caddy, to longing, longing, never stopping. Um, Quentin kills himself. Um, Caddy and, and Quentin, the sister, the daughter, are both promiscuous. I mean, they. So when you're reading Faulkner, re remember that we're in a modern world in, in which Christian love, as we know it, almost ceases to exist, and what's in its place is this striving to get ahead. So that's the commercial regime, that's the background. We've got this long history coming from the Divine Comedy to Faulkner. That's where we are. And one of the questions I, I don't want you to lose sight of is, where's Christ? Is he here? Is he in a character in the story? Is he in the writer? Is, can we find him anywhere? Is he here? Where? Okay. Let me stop there. Okay, one last thing before we look at Faulkner. We looked at all these short stories. Most of them had to do with women. Women sort of got unmasked in this. We're going to turn from this focus on women to a masculine principle again. It's going to be Flem Snopes and what happens. Re remember the importance of dreams and visions in the short stories. Mrs. May had two dreams. Remember? It opened with her dream that there was this noise outside and she woke up. I, if I, I, I'm, I may have them wrong. I may misremember them now, but it was like a bullet. She heard this noise. It may have been the second one it turned into a bullet, but it was like in the beginning one, it was this munching that was eating away her property. In the second dream towards the end, I, I think it was this burning or chewing away at her property that turns into a bullet. I think it was the sun. And remember, if, if you remember the story, she's described in terms of a circle. And I suggested that circle was an image of her self-sufficiency. She did not want to lose control. She wanted to be in control, to be self-sufficient, not depend on anybody. She didn't want the bull coming in. She didn't want the green lease taking over her property, envy. She was afraid that everything she had, had worked hard for would be lost. Um, so she's a proud, self-sufficient woman. She puts down the green leaf. She, she, she's dishonest in her presentation, her reading of the sun. She says her sons are better than her. She's, it's envy she, and pride that drives her. She doesn't want anybody to be better. She doesn't want, any, she doesn't want to lose all that she spent her life gaining. Grace is trying to enter that world. Uh, Marcy on Monday night asked to find Grace, and I, I, I've got to get back to her because I don't think I did it well, but it's this. I mean, if you see it, um, Grace is God offering a supernatural love, something that we can't get on our own. We can't earn it. We can't make it happen the way we would if we're running a farm and trying to be successful and get money. It's a free gift. The question is, are we open to it? And you know what grotesque comedy shows. We're not. It's the stubbornness and the pride that gets in the way so that what happens when grace meets that stubbornness is the grotesque moment. It's the violence. Um, you know my own reading of the stories is that both women receive it at the end. I mean, I know that there's disagreement. I think they do, but that's my own reading of it. Grace is an offering of a self-sacrificing love. Everything about Mrs. May, everything about the grandmother, everything about Mrs. Turpin until the end is proudful. They will not hear, they will not receive, they close it out. That, they, they won't let anything in that circle. 
The bull, remember, is a Christ image. It's got the... the um, Crown. Yeah, what do you thorns. call it? The Crown of thorns. Yeah, but it's a thicket, or what was it? Wreath. It's a wreath, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the crown of thorns, it's that wreath. It's a Christ figure. Remember, he pierced her heart, which is what should have been open, because it's the heart by which we offer our loves. Um, so, um, in two visions there, two dreams, and in Laura's, Flowering Judas, remember it ends with her dream of, the, of um, Eugenia's betrayal, come follow me, take me. And it, it's an image of her feasting on him, body and blood. It's a, it's a parody, it's an inversion of the Eucharist. Remember, I, I, I took us back to the center of the Inferno, because all of the episodes that lead towards the end of the Inferno deal with eating. Satan is feasting on Judas, Cassius, and Brutus. He's eating them. Why? Um, Ugolino, the, which is the brutal scene just before that, it's, the, it's um, Ugolino feasting on Ruggiero, the bishop, who put him in the tower. He's eating on him. Why? Fra Alberigia um, betrays his brother and a, a d demon immediately takes possession of his soul. And we know that he's still on earth. What was the occasion? His brother slapped him to get back at him. He invited him to a dinner and killed him. Why all those feasting images? If hell is an inversion, the opposite of heaven, what would you expect at the center of heaven? Self-giving. Christ offering himself as body and blood for others. He's asking us to do the same, to make a self-sacrifice, to see ourselves as the Eucharist. And what we get out of um, Catherine Ann Porter's story is every time we betray Christ, every time we use another person as a human being, we're turning that person into body and feasting on them. We're going back to the suitors in the Odyssey, feasting on Odysseus, <coughs> eating them. So, um, it's interesting in these last, these short stories that we've been reading, that grace very often comes through dreams, visions. Why? Because it seems to me, it's, it's the way that grace works to get around our reason, because our reason so often gets in the way. We justify ourselves, we make excuses, we use our reason in the wrong way. So Christ very often comes through dreams, through visions. The, 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 the rational mind is relaxed at night. Things come to us very often. We don't want to see them. That's where they come. So, um, so this is all by way of leading up to Faulkner and this commercial regime and this question of grace and so many of the ways in which we try to avoid Christ or run away from him. Remember in, in Flowering Judas, one of the things I love so much about that story is, remember the whole story is told in the present tense, that Laura does everything she can to live in the present. She doesn't want reference points outside of the present moment. It's her way of hiding from Christ. At the end of the dream, if you remember, we talked about it, when she comes out of the dream, she comes out to a past tense. She's in time. So all of those stories show us grotesque comic moments where something violent happens and because an offering is made, a grace is being offered. 
and it has to deal with our resistance, our human resistance. So, okay, let me stop there. Sorry, that's so long, but any questions about everything leading up to Faulkner and this Snopes trilogy, this, this funny, funny. Um, by the way, if you've read the Snopes chapter, you know that it opens, it's very comic with what happens with Jody and, and Ab Snopes. By the time we get to the end of the Snopes, or the, yeah, the Phlegm section, it's gotten darker because Phlegm has taken over everywhere, everywhere. So it begins very humorously, but it's, there's a sinister quality starting to creep into the writing. So any, any questions or comments or before we, sorry that took so long. <laughs> She's still looking at me. <laughs> um, would anybody be willing to give me a ride home this morning? <laughs> Sure. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> I'll be forever indebted. <laughs> My wife will probably be indebted to you, too. No questions? Must be something wrong in what I did. Fanny, do you have something? No? Tell me your response. What's your response? How, <laughs> it gives a pretty dark view of our regime, no? the success and getting ahead and... How much has changed? Huh? <laughs> Not much has changed. No, no, no. Faulkner's pretty current. I mean, this, we're close to our time right now. Even though it's set around 1900, and it'll go up to the 1940s, I think late 40s, when in the, in the mansion when Mink, like, well, I can't tell you what happens with Mink, but it gets closer to our own time, so. Okay, let's, um, let's look at the Hamlet. You think it, most people don't read the literature like this, so uh, I don't know anything, but what you're saying is that, that you need some way to step out of the culture and perspective, but most of us can't. It's the cave, Tom. I mean, I really believe that so more strongly than I can say. <clears throat> if you don't have a way of stepping out of the culture, there's no way to see it. it it's so, you know, when I think about dead white men and everything that's being done to get rid of this literature, I just think it's horrible. I mean, what's done in the name of diversity, I know, I know that diversity is important, but what's done in the name of it is so often undermines itself. If we lose contact with this tradition, <coughs> the classical tradition, because it gave us a way of stepping outside of the culture, actually it prepared for Christ, but leave, leave that out for a moment. You take that away and you enter into modern forms of thought, it just seems to me it's so much harder Freud takes us into an animal unconscious, you know, there's perversities, the Oedipus complex and polymorphous perverse. Darwin takes us into a, an evolution, a flux, an ongoing change. We, how do you step outside of that? You're a product of it. So there's very little in the modern world helping us exactly to do what you just said. And if you don't step out of it, how, in the world, how can you question it? How can you see it? How can you understand it? How can you deal with it? Couldn't agree more. Okay. What I'd like to do is just, um, um, I'm going to just very quickly summarize the phlegm section and then I'd like to read a couple of passages because they're so funny. 
it, it opens with this background um, description of, of um, Will Varner and the coming into being of Frenchman's Bend. It's a product of some foreigner who, whose roots can't be traced back. Some people think he was French. The country people think he was French. The people who live in the city think he was Dutch because everybody was foreigner. They either came to northern, the Northerns or France. But they can't, they can't trace it back. Um, but Varner was in a position to take over at no, no cost, and he's become now the overlord of this great, vast uh, country. He's, almost, he's in charge of everything, the school, the, the, the store, the government. Um, he polices it. Everybody looks to him. And like that kind of man, he absolutely takes his family for granted, <laughs> or, and I'd say his wife. They have 16 children. I think it was 16. Was it eight of who were women, girls? Nine girls. Nine. Um, his attitude towards women, you know, if you, well, you, you're probably not there, but you'll get to it when you get to the Eula section. His, at, his attitude towards Eula, to, and I think to his other, just to get them married off, because he knows they're going to get laid by some guy. <laughs> Eventually, I mean, he, he thinks of women as being layable. That's, that's a commercial way of looking in, in itself. He has no regard for his children at all. They grow up left to themselves. Jody has control of everything you know. He, he sort of runs everything under his father. And the story opens with Ab Snopes coming into the store, the only store in town. By the way, I, I, I wish, when we were on our way home a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about it and Suzanne was saying, Doc, can you do this very briefly? How does it remind you of Mount City? Describe Mount City when you were, growing up, when you were a girl. Can you do it really briefly? I'm gonna get cross with you if, you, if you're a, if you're not brief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need a ride. I had to say that. Can you, can you do that? It's a small town in um, southeast Kansas. I'm asking Doc to do this because it wasn't my experiences. And I know that there are some people who grew up in small towns. You know, I could, um, um, lots of people. I didn't, but Suzanne had this to say, so it, it's... Small town in southeast Kansas, population 800, maybe really small when I was growing up. Um, and the main street was two blocks long, and it was basically dead um, during the week. And then on Saturdays, everybody would come in from the farms. Um, but during the week, there would be groups of men around the barber shop and um, and around the dry goods store, um, just standing around, some drinking coffee, some just standing talking. Um, it was just, it was a small town. Everybody knew everybody and knew everything about everybody. There were no, no secrets. Um, and people talked pretty freely about everybody. I don't know what else. Did I say something else that you know? Oh, you said a lot. But I, one of the things I remember is that the women were always at home because they were too busy. They always had to work and do things. The men were only there um, in the off-planting season, so they just lolled around a lot of the year, I mean, when, until they had to plant or harvest. So it was the men outside, never the women, um, and which is what we've seen here. Um, what else? I can't think that was it. Yeah. 
Anyway, that's the, that's the setting. Yeah. Um, Ab Snopes comes into Jody's store and says he wants to rent, and Jody's only too eager to do it. And then once he agrees to do it and he's ready to leave that day, he finds out from the men who are out in the veranda that Ab Snopes had, um, has the reputation of having burned a barn when things didn't go well with his landlord. And Jody begins, and this is really funny. Jody, I want to come back to this because this is just hilarious. And then he starts learning other things. Well, no, initially he, he thinks, to my, to my advantage, if he's done that, I've got that over him so I can use it. And it's, it's like he's going to put this squeeze on a renter. I think about people renting houses today, you know, putting squeeze on her, getting the most or not losing any money. Jody keeps thinking in terms of getting money. He goes home to tell his dad that night, and the dad says, sure, until he burns another barn. Jody says, no, I've got that figured out. And we hear it. I'll, I'll read it because it's really funny. Um, Ratliff enters the story, and he's going to be the main figure through the whole of the Snopes trilogy. He's a sewing machine salesman, rides around in a, in a buggy across all these countries, and rarely goes outside these boundaries. And it makes a point in this opening section of saying he's really good at listening. Everybody else talks, he listens. So when he talks, it's always with this wry sense that he sees something other people don't because he listens to people, he takes it in. And it makes a point of saying he listens to women. He sits down in these, give it a bang, the scent, the... Just punch it. Can you punch it. There. Hi, Linda. Um, he makes a point of visiting women and sitting down in the women's groups because he's no, he knows that if he wants to learn something, he has to hear what the women have to say. But he wants to sell sewing machines. Yeah. And who buys them? <laughs> right, right. Remember this too. He sells sewing machines. Sewing machines put things together and mend. Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom, was a weaver. The image of wisdom in the ancient world was feminine and weaving. Why? Because it meant putting things together. What is Ratliff doing? Always, always putting things together, making sense of them. When um, in the scene following the meeting between Jody and his dad, Jody meets with Ratliff, and Ratliff has nothing but humor at his expense because he knows what's going to happen. Anyway, what we see is, is Flem, um, Jody goes out to Ab's place, almost wanting to get out of the deal, but saying, we, this is, this, how, how real is this? We can get along. If we have any problems, we just talk it through. How many, how many times have we heard that in our life? And how many times have you heard people say, if they only talk things through, as if talking could do it. If you're dealing with evil, by the way, this is going to be a principle through the book. I, I, people are going to probably throw books at me at this one. What we learn about this book is evil's too fine to be defeated by the law. I hope everybody will hear that. If evil exists in the world, if there's a, if any such thing as Satan, you think the law is going to be sufficient to answer him? Watch Jody. <laughs> Anyway, he goes out saying, all we have to do is talk. If we have a problem, we'll talk it through. And then he leaves, and on the way out, hidden behind a tree as he's down the road, suddenly emerges Flam Snopes. 
Ab's son. And Jody realizes he's going to make a deal with us that he doesn't want another problem. And at the end of that conversation, Flem says, you own a store, don't you? Jody blinks for a moment because he knows where Flem is going to this. He says, sure. The next scene we see Flem clerking Jody's store. So he takes Jody's place. And at the end of that scene, as he leaves Flem, he suddenly realizes Flem had positioned himself so nobody at Ab's house, because he just left his father's house, nobody could see him. We're meant to see that this is the moment, because we will see in the next episode that Ab's got soured in all of his dealings with Pat Stamper. Remember, he tried to best him, and then he gets bested himself. The description is, the reputation is, Ab got soured. He's not bad. What we see in his son is he's the... In, He's evil incarnate. He is an evil man. So he's learned everything he did from his dad, but cut loose from those roots. He has no roots to anything. He won't, he won't avoid stooping at anything to get what he wants. So we see him dissociating from the father in that scene. And then following that, we get the abs, the abs um, Snopes and the Pat Stamper deal where Abs tried to get back at Stamper and gets pested it. And then um, Ratliff gets sick and we get all the news of all these things that are happening now that Flem is established. It isn't soon after that that he takes over the gin and, Flem, or, and Jody's back clerking the store. And shortly after that, we see I.O. Snopes is in the blacksmith shop and Trumbull is packing up and leaving. There's no place for him. The Snopes start taking over. And interesting, it's, I mean, it's so, you have to read closely here. I.O. comes after Houston comes to shoe his horse, and the person there is Eck. I.O. takes Trumbull's place, and he hires his cousin to work for him. So he's not even there. You all, you're all with me, yeah? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch how subtle these moves are, and gradually how much they're taking over. And we learned shortly after that that I.O. is going to be the school teacher. By the end of the story, Flem has taken over the gin, and then he takes over Jody's place at Varner's side as his accountant. So he's holding everybody accountable. And shortly after that, he will move into Varner's home. The words at the end of the Flem section, this is on page 98. You don't have to go there, but the beginning of the last section. Those who watched the clerk now saw not the, pretty, not the petty disposition of a blacksmith, but the usurpation of an airship. The usurpation of an airship. He didn't just take over Jody's. He has done that. He's taken over a place in a culture. What we're watching, like Sound and the Fury, is not the disintegration of a family, it's the, it's the loss of a culture. That the, the South in its agrarian ways was too innocent of evil. It did not deal with evil. What we're watching is evil taking over. Degree by degree by degree, these innocent people doing nothing. Who's the person most aware? Ratliff. A sewing machine who has no interest in upward mobility. No, he's outside of that whole world, okay? So that's the, 
That's just a brief summary. At the very end, it, it closes, the, the phlegm section closes with a description of Jody, or I mean phlegm, if I remember correctly. Phlegm sitting in Varner's flower bell. Remember, he had a cut. He, he, Varner says the, the, the worst deal he ever made was buying Frenchman's Ben because he can't sell it, he can't, get, he can't make money off of it. At the very, and he had this chair made so he could sit out on the lawn and watch people pass. At the very end of the phlegm section, phlegm is sitting in that. And there's that passage, I love it. Um, let me, um, where, where it says um, phlegm passed Jody, and Ratliff says, no, it was only then that Jody became aware that he passed him because we're led to believe Flem passed him a long time ago. I'm going to say, Flem passed Jody on that night when Jody went home to his father to make clear what he was going to get out of this man. He was already lost. So that's the Flem section. Okay? The, the part that I didn't go into, and I, let me just take a minute. It's, it's hilarious. If you remember the Pat Stamper story, you remember that Absnopes got screwed by Stamper once before and he wants to get back in him. So he, he gets this horse, this bay, ready. He feeds them this stuff that will roughen him up to sort of get him riled. And he puts a fish hook under his coat to spark him, to get him jittery and nervous so he sh shows he's got some life. He goes by Ab Snopes' place and makes a deal with him. And in turn, he gets this <coughs> trace, the horse, I think a horse and a mule. He goes into, he sneaks off, you know, he goes to town to, um, to buy this separator because his wife, they have a cow back home. They have, the wife has saved up all this money forever to get the separator, milk separator. They go into town and, and bring back the separator. Before they get back to the Ab Snopes place, I mean the Ab, I mean the Pet Stamper place, the mule and the horse are falling apart. <laughs> Ab is concerned that they won't even make it over the hill. And he suddenly realizes that the horses that he had, or the horse and mule, are worse than the horse and mule that he traded in. That Pat Stamper bested him again. He, if, he, if he goes home, he knows he's going to be humiliated. All the people are going to laugh at him. He can't bear that. So he wants to go back to Stamper's place and make a trade again. <laughs> Stamper says he's already traded the horses. He can't do it, so he can't trade them back. But he's got another set. And Ab says, good. And Stamper says, let's go in the house. It's clear that they make a deal that, that he will trade them this set that's much better than the set he sold him earlier plus the term, the separator. So they make the deal and they drive off. Ab is, um, what's the word, crestfallen? I mean, he's, he's, he's lost. He doesn't have the separator. He's going to go home to his wife without a separator and a, and a, a mule and a horse that's only slightly better than, <coughs> seemingly slightly better than the one Pat Stamper originally sold him. Rain starts coming down. Ratliff's a boy, he's only eight years old, and he grew up with Ab, so he knows him. He's with Ab during all of this, that's why we can get it from Ratliff. It starts to rain when Ab was with Pat Stamper, they had drinks together. Clearly, Ab was doing everything he could to drink and get drunk because he wanted to forget what he's going to face when he gets home to meet his wife. He falls into a slump, Ratliff pulls under a shelter, the rain continues. When the rain comes up, it's dawn. The sun is up. Ab wakes up and he's looking out at 
the bay, he sold the stamper earlier because the rain had washed it off. So the mule is worse and he's got the bay that he had and he's lost the separator. So, and, and when he gets down to look at the horse and he's going over the coat and he sees it's been painted and the rain washed it off and he's looking at a bay again, he finds it someplace tucked in a little bicycle pump valve that um, Stamper had used to inflate the horse and make it bigger than his own so he didn't recognize it. So he screwed him. And he can't do it. Why? Because they're bound by contract. He can't do anything. I mean, you, I mean back then, that, that's the way thing. And you know it's that way today. I mean, for all of its good and evil. He goes home. The wife is furious with him, just furious. She gets in the buckboard with the cow. She goes to Stamper. She gives him the cow for the separator. Now they have a milk separator. When she gets home, no cow. <laughs> It's, it's a funny, funny, you know. I mean, it's that anecdotal sort of story you would have heard on the porch with men lounging outside the store. And, um, but it gets darker and darker as we go along because we learn in all the things that happen that Flemsnups is starting to take over. So that's the, let me read, I want to just read a couple of lines before we start. Go to the very beginning, can you? This is just after... Jody makes his arrangement with Ab Snopes to rent farm, providing that um, Abs takes part of his harvesting and gives a portion of it to the landlord. That would have been an ordinary arrangement. Page 12. He goes home that night fully convinced that because it was late in the season, he's got one up on this man. The man's going to be more dependent on him. We learn later that whenever Ab did contract, he always contracted at this time because it put him in this position. It's like he was setting up an owner to give the owner the illusion that he had one up on him. So is everybody following? So Ab Snopes is really cunning. He knows, he knows what he's doing. Top of page 12. You already contracted with him, Will Varner said? I hadn't named to at all till Vernon Toll told me what he did. Now, now, so Toll tells him he burned a barn. If you know the story, you remember, the story is that Ab Snopes rented from Despain, we know him from Godin Moses, went into his house, deliberately stepped in a, a pile of cow poop or horse pooper, and then went in directly into the door when the door was open, went to a rug and stepped on the rug and messed it. Despain brings the rug, to, the rug to Ab and says, clean it up. Ab takes an acid something and rubs it out and returns it. Despain is furious. One of the wonderful things we've learned about that is once you acquire wealth and you have something you're afraid to lose, people can use that fear. I hope that's really clear because it's a fundamental principle here. Once you start acquiring things, you live with a fear of losing them. You don't want to lose them. This thing about, I don't get what I'm worth, you know, that we carry within us. We start acquiring things to build ourselves up. We create a condition of fear of losing them. It puts us in a vulnerable place. That's where Despain is. Ab brings the rug back, throws it on the floor. Despain is furious. He can't do anything about it. Now the rug is ruined. It's a $100 rug. The great irony is that the next thing that Despain learns is that 
Ab takes him to court, and he um, he he believes it's unjust for um, <coughs> Spain to ask for twenty bushels, and the judge decides in favor of Spain, but half as much. So he says to Ab, "You're not going to pay twenty. That's too much in your condition. You're going to pay ten. Ab is so furious that he has to pay ten. That that night, he burns the barn. And we learn from Ratliff or others that he probably burned another one as well. So at this point, Jody thinks, he, here's it, I, I mean, it doesn't say this explicitly, but I think this is what's going on. He's burned a barn. I've got that over him. Because if he's burned a barn and he burns my barn, now I can go to court and say, there's a barn burner. So he thinks he's got this power over him. Okay, that's what he's bringing into this conversation. Page 12. You already contracted with him, Will Varner said. I had a name to it all till, till, till Vernon told, told me what he did. Now I figure I'll take the paper up there tomorrow and let him... He can't get there fast enough to have him sign the contract because he thinks he's got it over him. Then you can point out to him which house to burn to. <laughs> it's the father. Or are you going to leave that to him? The father knows where this is going. His son is so dumb. Sure, Jody said. We'll discuss that too. Then he said, and now all levity was gone from his voice. All post and repost and humors, light, whimsy, tears, quarto, and prime. Those are fencing maneuvers that put you at advantage with the person that you're fencing with, those terms. All I got to do is find out for sure about that barn, but then it will be the same thing whether he actually did it or not. All I need will be to find out all of a sudden at gathering time that I think he did it. Listen, take a case like this. He leaned forward now over the table. God, this is... <laughs> he thinks he's so smart. He leaned forward now over the table, bulging, protuberant, intense. The mother had bustled out to the kitchen where her brisk voice could be heard scolding cheerfully at the Negro cook. The daughter was not listening at all. Here's a piece of land that the folks that own it hadn't actually figured on getting nothing out this late in the season. And here comes a man and rents it on shares um, the rents it on shares, the last place he rented on, a, bur a barn got burned up. Don't matter whether he actually burnt that barn or not, though it will simplify matters if I can find out for sure he did. The main thing is, it burnt while he was there, and the evidence was such that he felt called on to leave the country. So here he comes and rents this land we hadn't figured on nothing out of this year. He was going to lose money. He sees in every way he's going to gain on this. Here's this Capitalistic, entrepreneurial, contractual mind. Here comes a man and rents it on shares. The last place he ran on a barn got burned up. He don't matter whether he did, he said. The main thing is it burnt while he was there, and the evidence was such that he felt called on to leave the country. So here he comes and rents this land. We hadn't figured on nothing out of this year, no how. And we furnish it him out of the store, regular and proper. Then he makes his crop, and the landlord sells it all regular and has the cash waiting, and the fellow comes in and gets his share, and the landlord says, what's this I hear about you and that barn? That's all. What's this I just heard about you and that barn? They stared at one Because he thinks he's just going to drop this hint, like he just found out about it, when he, obviously he will have known about it all along, and, if, and that Ab is going to, what, acquiesce, give in, that sees it's long. So Jody thinks he's got complete control. Then he goes out, he talks with Rat. I mean, this is a day later, he talks with Ratliff and other things come to light. And then Jody realizes he, he's made a really stupid mistake. He goes out to the Ab place 
And um, that's where he, I mean, he's frightened too, he almost can't speak, where he makes it clear to Ab that they will be able to get along, that all they have to do is talk things through and they'll be fine. Um, on page 23 in the middle of the page. <coughs> all right, Varma said, we can discuss the house because we'll get along, all right. We'll get along. Anything that comes up, all you got to do is come down to the store. No, you don't even need to do that. Just send me word and I'll write. There he is. I mean, do you see how craven? Because once you have all this and you're facing the threat of losing it all, the fear takes over and you will do anything. And that's what he's done. He's completely given himself He's really at Fun's mercy at this point. So whether he knows it or not, the usurpation has already taken place right here. When he leaves, it's it's then that he runs into Flem, and you know the story after that. I just I want to read I want to read just a couple of passages here to, for you all to. Um, I read the one about um, the usurpation. Turn to page. Um, 66. Ratliff is with these other men towards the bottom of the page because there was something in Jody's eyes that had not been there before either. This is when Flem has now taken over the gin. Um, the Snopes are beginning to ilf- infiltrate the country. They're, they're taking positions everywhere. Trumbull is left. Jody's, he saw something in his eyes that he hadn't seen before, a shadow, something between annoyance and speculation and purest foreknowledge, which was not quite bafflement yet, but was certainly sober. This was the time they referred to later, two, three years later, when they told one another. That was when he passed Jody, though it was Ratliff who amended it. You mean, that's when Jody began to find out. Because Ratliff knows Flem had already passed him way before even if he never saw them. He's only just discovering. What does that say about the nature of evil? How subtle and how invisible it is and how late it, how long it takes us to finally see it. Um, repeatedly in this opening section, it, the description will be Ratliff missed it. He didn't see it. So even Ratliff is learning. So one of the great themes of the of the trilogy, certainly in the opening one, it'll, but it'll continue through, is it's a culture coming out of innocence. It's learning to deal with evil, beginning to take responsibility, not being complacent about it, being aware of it. Um, so, and then you know at the end on, on, on that last, um, on page 98, it describes that usurpation that I read. Turn to page 90, there's a couple of, uh, or tr- 68 while you're there. Ratliff was sick, and when he comes back, he learns that um, that this scrub cattle that had been in um, Varner's land has now been replaced by this top-grade cattle. So that Flynn Snopes is making all of these deals that are benefiting Varner. That's why Varner has Flem take Jody's place as his accountant. So. Jody's been replaced. Gradually, Flem is taking his place until he sits next to him and eventually lives in his house. So we're watching a real usurpation, somebody taking over a culture. And notice, 
Remember, what's at issue? Before Flem came, all the men would go in the store when Jody wasn't even there. They would put their money, and all of them knew that, that Jody probably got a little bit more out of it than he should, but most of them trusted. They all trusted each other. Remember, this was this in, when we talk about um, or Good and Moses, that, what do you call it? You, anonymous, anonymous communal, com, anonymous communal, the sense of we in this agrarian culture, that there's this strong sense of a, of a we, of people, you just have to knock it down, yeah. Um, that there's strong sense of identity and trust among a, a people. They know each other. It's like Small Suzanne, thing. yeah, Suzanne's description of Mount City, that people <coughs> grow up, they know everything, they know the worst parts of human beings, they, they live with them. There's a trust that develops. That's what, that was the way people got along. What's taking its place is a northern banking ledger mentality. Keeping things figure, precise, holding people absolutely accountable. Except, um, we learn here that Flynn has reached a point where he's made enough money that he's beginning to lend money out. He lends it to, I think it's Quick. He learns it from book writing, and I, about Quick, I think. Quick borrowed money from Flynn at, I can't remember what it was, 10% interest or what it was. And um, he doesn't know that he's already paid it twice over. So Flynn has collected more than 100% interest on that. Now here's one of the things that I just want to introduce into this contractual mindset. You know that in the Middle Ages, one of the greatest sins, this is true for St. Thomas in the whole governing world, was usury. That most people think of usury as, um, as charging an, um, an, ex an excessively high interest rate. But one definition of usury, to me, which is more important to keep in mind, is you're charging money on an unpayable loan. It can't be paid. And you know that people went into debtor's prison in the, I mean, that's why the usury laws came into existence under a contractual regime. Because once you borrow money, if you do it and, and your venture goes in the tank, where are you going to find the money to pay it off? So people go to prison because they can't pay the loan and, the, and they're still held responsible for it. So one form of usury is charging money on an unpayable loan. Now think about how often Flem does that, the way he takes advantage of things that can't be recovered. Because in the South there's this strong sense of honor, men want to hold up to it. I mean, we saw what happened when Ab tried to go one-on-one -on -one with Pat Stamper. They constantly fail. Um, Jody doesn't see that once you take on men like that, you're in way over your head. Um, and you, one of the funniest quotes in the opening section is when Ratliff and Varner meet because Varner wants to find out from Ratliff what he sees because he knows that Ratliff is one of the smartest people around. At the end of the conversation, Ratliff says to Varner, there aren't but two men in this county who can deal with phlegm snows. You're, one of them has Varner um, It's the last name. And it's not Jody. The first name is not Jody. And the other one hasn't been proved yet. And we know at the end, and this is where I want to go to the ending. Remember at the ending, he has this goat deal. He, he learns that this northerner has come in with this herd of goats and bought up this land. He knows where there's 50 goats, 
and he can go and buy some goats and sell them to this northerner who needs 50 goats, if I remember, and make a profit. He goes to the store deliberately, tells the story so Flem hears it. Bookrise says, go out there and get them now. Rat, Ratliff does everything to delay because he wants to give Flem time. Remember, now just before this, he goes out to Mink's house, Flem Snow's cousin, to feel out Mink to see what he learns, and he ends up selling a selling a sewing machine to Mink. Mink pays him with a note from Flem. So he, he has a note from Flem that he can hold he can cash in on Flem. He believes now he's got a he's got a way to get at Flem. So he goes he goes to the store and lets out all these hints and we know that Flem goes to buy the goats and then Ratliff comes to him and says, okay, you beat me. Let's end with this. Um, says you beat me. Um, what page is that? You know, page 93, middle of the page. The face looked up at him chewing, you beat me, Ratliff said, how much? He wants those goats uh, because he can make a real killing by selling them to this northerner. And Flem knows that. The other turned his head and spat into the sand-filled box beneath the cold. Fifty cents, he said. I paid 25 cents for my contract, Ratliff said. All I am to do is get 75. So if he, if he paid 25 and he paid, it was originally, um, to get 75, he knows if he sells them to Flynn for 50, it will cut his earnings in half. I could tear the country and save hauling them to town. He knows that Flem wants to get rid of them. Flem doesn't want them, he wants to sell them. So he's got that over him right now. I paid 25 for my contract, Ratless. All I am to get is 75. I could tear up the contract and, um, and save hauling them. All right, Snope said, what'll you give? I'll trade you this for them. He drew the first note from the pocket where he had segregated and he saw it an instant, a second of a new note. This is Mink's note to him. So he'll trade it and tear it up. So in that sense, he gets the better of Flem in that part of the exchange. Flem says, wait a minute. He goes out um, to get Ike. Ike is this idiot. And Ratliff knows he's got a draft for a note for Ike. It was given to all three of the men by the grandmother. And he expects to collect on, he expected to collect on that. The, the um, Mink will, or I mean, Flem will have to turn it over um, and lose that deal too. He brings it out, he brings Ike out and shows Ike to Ratliff. And Ratliff feels sorry because he knows if. Um, if Flem gets the note, he'll sell it off again because Ike's an idiot. And he doesn't want to put Ike in that position. Ike's not going to know anyway. It's just it's a matter of principle. So he takes a match and, and burns that up. So in a sense, it's a draw. He got Flem on one issue and lost on the other. So when he comes out of that, he sends that message to Varner when he says um, on page 97, um, 
He's, he's with Mrs. Littlejohn. He said, if it ain't too much, I'll remember. He, he wants to ask her to give a message to Varner. It don't matter, Ratliff said, but if you happen to think of it, just tell him Ratliff says it ain't been proved yet, neither. He'll know what it means. That is, he knows that Varner's too smart to get taken over, although what we're seeing is that's not true, because Flem is taking over everything having to do with Varner. When you read the next section, you're going to be shocked because we're going to see just how much control he does have over Varner. I don't want to go there because what happens next is really good. So what we're seeing in the opening section of the Hamlet is Flemstopes, this masculine intellect, this principle, this cunning, this resourcefulness, go to work in his family. It's an image of upward mobility and the resourcefulness that it takes on to get what it wants. Um, and it stands out more brightly or darkly for what it is because it's, it's, it's gaining power in a basically agrarian southern world. So that's where we are. I want to just read one thing before we go. Turn to page 90. Ratliff has come back into town and, and he comes back aware that the Snopes are taking over. One of the Snopes is walking in front of him in town and it's Ike. And you can tell by looking at him that he's an idiot on page 90. Middle of the page. As he passed the gallery, he looked up and Ratliff saw the face too. The pale eyes which seemed to have no vision in them at all. The open, drooling mouth encircled by a light fuzz of golden virgin beer, beard. Another one of them, Bookwright said, in that harsh, short voice. Ratliff watched the creatures he went on. The thick thighs about to burst from the overalls, the mowing head turned backward over its shoulder, watching the dragging block. Dragging something. Um, Ratliff said, and yet they tell us we was all made in his image, Ratliff said. Now hold on to that line because you know the Christ, at the center of the Christian belief is that every one of us is made in the image of God, that everyone, every one of us has an image of Christ within us. Do we see it? Can we get past appearances to see that image? Ratliff says, and yet they tell us we all was made in his image. From some of the things I see here and there, maybe he was. Is that clear? What's, what's he saying? What's Bookwright saying? Explain that remark, that comeback. If you look at around, if you look all around you at the people and watch what people are doing, what you're going to see is nothing close to the image of God. Right? I mean, what you're watching, that is, you're watching a loveless world that people are using each other to get ahead. So he's saying maybe he was because the closest thing to it is an idiot who is outside of that world. Is that clear? It's a little bit like Benji. From some of the things I see here and there, maybe it was. Maybe he was made in the image of God because what he's seen around him is God's image defaced everywhere. Now hold on to that because what's going to happen with Ike coming up may shock you. Um, but just remember, he's an idiot in a, in a world in which people don't seem to love very much anymore. 
but I'm going to close on this note. Um, I, um, I was just looking through the Magnificat the other day, and um, the reflection, the reflection on um, for Tuesday, the reflection on that day. Was, I'm not going to read it all. This is from Dorothy Day, who you, and I'm sure most um, great educator, a great defender of social causes in early America. There's a character in the plague, the novel by Albert Camus, who says that he is tired of hearing about men dying for an idea. Remember, I've been arguing for months and months that in the modern world we tend to live in our heads. We, we, we give ourselves to ideas in our heads. Camus, who was the great, one of the great existentialists and novelists who lived at the time with Sartre, he died in an automobile accident. Camus, who says that he's tired of hearing about men dying for an idea, he would like to hear about a man dying for love for change. He goes on to say that men have forgotten how to love, that all they seem to be thinking of these days is learning how to kill. Man, he says, seems to have lost the capacity for love. That's from Dorothy Day. As you read through this world, be aware of what drives all of these, particularly the men, in this culture. And what's happening to love in this world. I'll leave it there. Wait one second.